Good morning. Our passage reading today is Psalms chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. As we turn to Psalm 13, we need the Lord to continue to establish the work of our hands. This is our work. We are people who gather around the Word. And the work right now is to hear from the Lord in His Word. So the work of listening well and hearing well from His voice. One ancient church father said that most of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms, they speak for us. And we need the Psalms to speak for us if we're really honest with where we're at God's people, they they need to know how to address the Lord in all of lives, with all of themselves before the Lord. They need to know what what does this need to look like? How does this need to sound before the Lord? And and God has given us his help in his word. The the Psalms, these these are a collection of works that are meant to be recited. They're meant to be sung. They're meant to be prayed, even publicly together, to help give language for addressing God in all of life, no matter what's going on, in all of life's circumstances and the, the difficulties and the hardships and the, the, the high moments of rejoicing and great joy, in order that all of our lives, no matter what is going on, it might all be directed to the glory of God in prayer and in praise. We can give voice to all these things and direct them to God that everything, all of our, our lives, our thoughts, our hearts, our emotions, all of us and all of our being would be brought under his rule, both our, our thoughts and our words, both our actions and our affections, all of our desires and emotions, that, that none of us would be people who would direct our words to the Lord, but then be emotional atheists, right? That we would direct our, our theology and our thoughts and, and some of our th- outward things to the Lord, and yet internally be atheistic in, in what's all inside of us. And the Psalms, they, they give us language so that everything, all of it, will be brought under the rule of our good God. The Psalms speak for us in all of our life's circumstances. And one of the most common ways, in fact, the most common way that the book of Psalms speaks for us is this language of lament. It's 40%, 59 of them, 40% of the Psalms. One commentator says it's the backbone of the entire Psalter, all of the Psalms put together. And this, the presence of so many laments, or lament at all, just speaks right into the reality of life in a fallen world with fallen, as fallen human beings, doesn't it? That we look around and we're wanting a Psalm 1 and 2 world and we're getting a Psalm 13 world. There's, there's a harsh reality to life in a fallen world. And when you look around and you rightly acknowledge it, there's, there's real grief in the midst of that. So lament is given to us to speak for us to the Lord. One just says this is a lament The definition of lament is an honest, impassioned expression of sorrow 
frustration, or confusion. Laments show that the Psalm 1 and 2 view of the good life and the blessed man and the blessed life is hard to maintain when you're living in a Psalm 13 world. That the Psalm 1 and 2 view is hard to maintain, that living the blessed life is, is a life that's going to be fraught with difficulty and challenge and pain and sorrow and frustration and hardship. And that these laments are given show that God has given inspired language for his people to use in their grief, in their turmoil, in their distress, in their despair to direct them to him. That laments are given shows that this is a God who wants his people, no matter what they're dealing with, to come to him with all that they are. Whatever's inside of them, he wants them to come to him with it. And the Lord is giving words for all of those difficult things, all of those frustrations, all of those confusions, all of those hardships, so that these people, they don't just stuff it down further inside them or bury it somewhere and, and then, then let these things like just move to a different way as if they actually will. He wants them directed to him, not, not to lead their lives, but directed to him, right? Not burying it, we're not letting it lead, we're directing it to him and lit. Or lament is the faithful, it's inspired way to direct complaint, confusion, sorrow, and pain and frustration, all of that, to the Lord. Lament, and all these laments are for those who are fighting for this view of the blessed life, the good life, the Psalm 1 and 2 under God's good rule and God's good ruler and hope and a delight in those things. It's for those who are trying for that view and living in a Psalm 13 type circumstance. And what Psalm 13 does for us is it, as an individual lament ascribed to David, it charts a path. It gives a script to go from complaint with God to trust in God, to resolve in God. Psalm 13, here's what it does. It moves from distress to rejoicing, from questioning to trusting, and it does it through three movements, three sections. Verses 1 and 2, you see an honest complaint. Verses 3 and 4, a bold request or requests. And verses 5 and 6, this hopeful resolve. Psalm 13, it begins with a question that gets repeated four times in the opening verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The, the how long's repeated four times. Charles Spurgeon said the how long is repeated so often that it's the howl this is the howling psalm. Like, how long, how long, how long? There, there's a howling before the Lord. How long? It, it doesn't primarily express from David like this desire for information, does it? He, he's not trying to get some data from God. It is expressing a complaint. It's expressing distress before God. David is, is he's like, he gets down into what's in his soul, and if he's just at this gut level, honest, what he has there are all these questions and all this confusion and all this turmoil and frustration at the Lord. That if we overheard this between David saying these things to the Lord, we would probably cringe. We would probably feel a little bit embarrassed. We might want to hide our faces thinking he's about to get smacked. In verse 1, he expresses his feeling to the Lord, like, how long are you going to forget me? Are you going to do this forever? 
He feels forgotten. And that God is seemingly absent. Like I'm looking around and trying to see where the Lord's at. And it seems like he's not even here. Perhaps he has a, a feeling that is similar to what Job felt in Job chapter 23. Verse 8 and 9. Job says, behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. Like, where is he at? He's pretty elusive. David just comes out and says, like, are you going to forget me forever? It seems like you're completely gone. He has a sense that God has withdrawn from him and is distant from him or just plain up absent from him. Now, he probably knows, right, like, I know the Lord is present, but that's a theory to him. It's not in practice. To him, it's like he's absent and gone. And this is not just Job, not just David. There's a line of faithful saints that have had the same exact kind of gut-level honesty and feeling before the Lord. Adoniram Judson, famous uh, Baptist missionary to Burma, after his wife and daughter died, he, he said this. One of the most celebrated missionaries of the past. We, here's what he wrote. God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Does that sound Psalm 13-ish? And David, he says those kinds of things here in verse 1. How, how long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide your face from me? Now, he knows better, right? His theology expresses better. In chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows that. Or in chapter 9, verse 12, he does not forget the, the cry of the afflicted. Or in verse 18, the, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Chapter 10, verse 14, but you do see. He, he knows those things to be true. That, that is his right theology. But here in practice, here in experience, here in what he was thinking as his, his gut level honesty, it seems as if the Lord is missing he knows that God doesn't forget. He knows that God sees, but none of that seems to fit what he senses as he gets into Psalm 13 and his circumstances in that psalm. He's feeling a long way from that Edenic experience that we talked about in Psalm 1 where there's this fruitful tree and he's bearing fruit in all these seasons because he's meeting the Lord in his word and hearing from him and walking with him. It seems like that's a distant past. He's far east of Eden in Psalm 13. And his complaint comes before the Lord. And it comes again in verse 2 with this continued anguish. And this time it's a little bit more internal. Verse 2 says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? Again, we're, we're a long ways from chapter 1, verse 2, where he says that here's the blessed man. He delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates it on it day and night. And here he says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? I'm in anguish here. There's no delight. And he expresses turmoil and discouragement, depression. Chapter, or chapter or verse 2, the end of it says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The, the how long question, it, it gets shortened each time as you go through it the four times, doesn't it? There's a, a sense where his voice is getting higher. The intensity is ramping up as he continues to pour this out, this complaint and frustration at the Lord. And not only does he express feeling depressed, feeling defeated, like he is trying to give us an understanding of his great distress that he's at here. There is an internal wrestling going on and an external enemy 
He says, how long are my enemies going to be exalted over me? We don't know what this enemy is. He doesn't give the circumstance for this. It could be a lot of things given David's life. It could be Saul, the king, when David's actually been anointed king, and Saul keeps chasing him and trying to kill him unjustly. It could be his sons who turned against him and tried to take the kingdom. Could be his wives who caused all kinds of different distresses in his life. Could be the Philistines or other kingdoms. Much of David's howling could be the result of all the relational strife that was in his life that came in almost every single direction that he could look. His enemy could be death. He could be looking back at the death of his son and thinking this thing is just going to take over me. It could be the result of his own sin. There are so many paths to distress, we can't even number them all. And I'm thankful that he doesn't give. Here's the specific circumstance so that we know all those paths are open to the pathway of distress and these howlings of verses 1 and 2. It's interesting that none of that evidence is given because it could be anything and could fit any person. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had that question lingering in your mind? How long? And knowing, I'm not supposed to say that God is absent, but it seems like you're absent. You ever had that question? You ever had some complaints aimed at God because he seemed really distant, as if he wasn't even there? Like, how could the things that I was told be true if this is my experience? You ever been there? You ever struggled with a, an internal, intense wrestling and discouragement and depression, or even an external defeat where it seems like the enemies? in this case, would also be the enemies of the Lord. That they keep winning and I keep losing and how long is this going to continue? You're not alone. Here's David. Those kinds of things were all present in David. This is just one psalm. We could have picked a lot of them. They're present in Elijah. They're present in Job. They're present in Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Is this the Paul that said, rejoice in the Lord always? Judson, Luther, David Brainerd, William Cooper, Charles Spurgeon. I mean, we could go down the list of famous saints of old that have had these same kind of struggles and howlings coming from their soul to the Lord. And God wants his people to pour those things out to him. He, he says in, in Psalm 62, verse 8, we're to pour out our hearts to the Lord. And what's in our hearts sometimes are these questions, these confusions, how long, these frustrations, they're present there. Now, now maybe you're here this morning and you're like, your life is pretty good. And maybe you've had a good life the whole time. And so you can't identify fully with like, what is David talking about? All this external problems, internal wrestlings. Life seems to be fine. God seems to be near me. Maybe you can't identify. Well, here's the, I'm, I'm going to hate to bring you down. I'm going to do it though. Look around the world. If you personally can't identify with this lament, just take a look at our broken world. How far do I need to go to, to, to get you to a how long? Like, how long are you going to let this go on, God? How about the Democratic Republic of Congo? What was it end of October, 35 were killed in a terrorist attack? They, they are targeting Christians. as an Islamic group is targeting Christians. Right now, they're crying out for help. And no one's stopping them. Does that bring a how long? I mean... We just look around, and the reality is that if we're looking around our world, 
Or, or Christian, if you're looking around and thinking of your family across the globe, the reality is that maintaining a, the view that, that in Psalm 1, I can delight in the law of the Lord and in his rule, and I can meditate on it day and night, and that's the blessed life. Or I can look in Psalm 2 and, and look to this one who's to come, this ruler, this son, and find such great desire in him that he is the one that we need. And maintaining that kind of view and that kind of hope in a world that we live in is going to be fraught with difficulty because Psalm 1 and 2, those views are going to run into Psalm 13 eventually. So whether you came in with that or not, I'd hate to like insert it into your life, but you need to know that it's present. And if it's not present yet, even at looking at all those things, here's what we know is coming. We just saying, teach us to number our days. Your days are numbered. Your death is coming. Maybe that will be part of the how long in your own life. Now the hows of Psalm 13, they express this gut level honesty about life in this fallen world, and they provoke these complaints from the faithful. Whatever's going on in David's life, it provokes this honest complaint about the Lord and to the Lord, about himself and about his enemies. And from this place of great distress, filled with complaints, David starts to voice these bold requests. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me. Consider. He wants the Lord to take note of his situation. He wants the Lord to know what's going on in his situation and to answer him in his distress. And before we move into like, yes, that is exactly what you should ask for, we should remember that that is no small request for a tiny human being with this almighty God. This, this man that God has created, God owes him nothing. He does not owe him breath. He does not owe him an audience. He does not owe him a response. And David knows this. In Psalm 14, he goes through like, hey, the fool says in his heart there's no God. And the Lord looks down to see if there's anyone who seeks after God, and there's none. David knows, like, I'm a part of that company. I haven't sought after the Lord as I should. I haven't lived in light of the, the good designer and in my design that he's given to me. And so why should the Lord listen to me? He knows that. In Psalm 15, he says, who shall sojourn in the tent of the Lord? Who shall dwell on his holy hill? No one. Who, the one who walks blamelessly. David knows, I've been conceived in sin. I'm not that man. He knows he doesn't deserve an audience from the Lord. He knows all those things. And yet, he still knows Psalm 1, right? The blessed life is found in looking toward the Lord and his law and finding him and delighting in those things and meditating on him. He's committed and knows that that ought to be the commitment of his life. And so in the midst of that, he's saying, like with all the wrestling, he's saying, consider me, God. He knows that the blessing of Psalm 2 is found in submission to the Son, in running to this Son, this, this anointed one, this King for refuge and in hope. And he says, in the midst of that, when I'm not seeing it, answer me, God. So David is bold enough in his distress to request an audience and response from God. And there's great urgency here as he speaks. Consider Answer, O oh Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Light up my eyes. Like, the picture here is that his eyes are glazing over as life ebbs out of him as he nears his own death. And he's saying, God, light them up. Perhaps he even feels physically nauseous, has a severe illness perhaps, and he may sense or feel in his bones at a gut level place, my end is drawing near. Light up my eyes or I'm going to die. This could happen through what he also says here, lest my enemy, right, exalt over me. 
Say, I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. This could happen through an enemy putting him to death, which was a constant threat in David's life. Everywhere he goes, he is under threat of death. Even when he's walking the path that the Lord has given to him as the anointed king, like he's still under constant threat. And his enemy rejoicing over him, that just sounds like, hey, man, just learn to take your losses, right? No. You know, if his enemy rejoices over him as the one who's the anointed king, if he falters, if he's shaken, that would put him and his people that he's with in extreme vulnerability. This is a bad place for him to be. David thinks when he prays these things, when he gives these requests to God, he thinks my life is on the line here. It is hanging in the balance based on the Lord noting my situation and giving me a response. Without the Lord's intervention, he's saying, I'm done. And so he comes with these complaints, but he also comes with these requests. You need to hear, you need to answer. You better light up my eyes because it seems like life is moving out of me. Paul prays a prayer that sounds kind of Psalm 13-ish to me too. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember he's given a thorn and it says that he, in chapter 12 verse 8, he's pleased to the Lord. Three times. Like think about what goes into Paul's emotional, like, like, uh, buying into what he's praying for there. Like he is all the way in to, to plead three times. Take this away. It's very specific and it's very urgent and it's a very strong plea. Maybe Paul thinks that this pain, whatever that thorn is, is leading to my death, that my life is on the line, so please take it away. He's asking something big. Without your help, God, I'm done. Like, you notice how these men are using prayer, not like a, you know, the, the intercom, to, to ring the butler. They're, they're pushing the wartime communications, right? They're saying, God, you better send supplies or it's over. And deep distress can do that. It can produce these bold requests. Hard questions like, how long are you going to hide your face from me? In verses 1 and 2, lead to kind of these urgent pleas for help. So have you made some bold requests like this to the Lord? These urgent pleas for His relief. The seeming that your life is on the line in His answer and response. His hearing and response. This is not unknown to God or to God's people. Here are, ones, here are words for one who is in great distress looking for the Lord to just keep him alive. And as we've gone through this psalm, the intensity has not lessened a bit. In fact, each line seems to heighten it a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. And so what happens in verse 5 is actually quite surprising. The, the conjunction that begins verse 5, this word but, sounds this shift in this lament, this move from this great intensity and distress to something different. Look in verse 5, he says, but I, I have trusted in your steadfast love. The, the conjunction, it comes in, and it just kind of lets the air out of the intensity here. But, and then life is breathed in a little bit. The, the air of the intensity is let out. This isn't a denial. When he gets to verse 5, he doesn't deny anything that he's already said. He doesn't deny any of the intensity of verses 1 through 4. Nothing's been erased. As if now that I've said this word, but, everything else is changed. I heard that one time. In a, in a business speech, they said, right, hey, you know, make your pitch and then say but. And then everything you say after the but, before that, or whatever you said before that, it's all erased. And you're going to make your sale right there, right? That's not what's happening here. Nothing's been erased by this new turn. But right in the very midst of verses 1 through 4, in all of the circumstances and intensity and complaints 
and turmoil and struggle of verses 1 through 4. And right in the middle of this honest complaint and bold request, here's what David does. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You notice that's rising up within David in the middle of all this is this resolve. He looks back and he says, but I've trusted you. He knows the one that he's trusted. He knows his love and he's trusted it. He knows that he's been that Psalm 1 man that said, no, I looked to your law and I walked with you there and, and I've delighted in it. I know who you are. I know what you're like. And so I, I have trusted your love. And this love, when we think about that word love, it's, it's such a mushy word in our culture. Like we don't understand love as David speaks about it very well. This is a sturdy word. It's the love of the Lord who would take a people that are puny and weak and don't even desire him and would redeem them, buy them, pull them out of the world's superpower in Egypt and make them his own. That's the kind of love that he's talking about here. The, the kind of love that would say to these people who, who are sinful people and, and are going to walk in rebellion that, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you where I'm committed to you. I'll be your God. You be my People. It's the kind of love that sustains a people in the midst of their Egyptian slavery, in the midst of their wilderness wanderings and complaints, and all the way into the promised land. Why? Because it's the love that says, Deuteronomy 7, he says, I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I chose you because I chose you. I love you because I love you. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Or as the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible says, like, it's a great definition. It's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Parents, you, I can rattle that off like, Get that Bible and read that to your kids and know that when that word is said, that this is never breaking, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever, love of God. That's a good definition of the love that David is talking about in the Psalms. It's this kind of thing about God that's central to him and it's a permanent aspect of his being and of his character and it's revealed in his word, in his law, this is what I'm like. And what's central there, what's permanent there is that this is a God of love, unbreaking, Never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. And David says, that's been my trust. I've trusted in that before. And so he resolves, based on who he knows God to be, based on how God has loved, he says, I'm, I'm resolved, I'm going to trust in that love. And in that trust, I'm going to rejoice, verse 5, in your salvation. In the midst of verses 1 through 4, of all the turmoil and anguish there, in the midst of that, he resolves to rejoice. He has this hopeful resolve to trust in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. He resolves to rejoice in this salvation that the Lord has delivered to him. Right? Notice that he has seen salvation from the Lord. He could read about it. How, here's how God pulled people out of Egypt and redeemed his people and made them his own. He knows that salvation. And yet in his situation in, verse th in chapter 13, he's still waiting for salvation, isn't he? He's saying, my enemies are exalting over me. I think I'm going to die. You better do something here. And so he knows some salvation and he's looking for some salvation. He's right in the middle of that. And in the middle of that, he says, I'm going to rejoice. Before there's evidence that that salvation is coming, I'm going to rejoice. Before I know how it's going to come, I'm going to rejoice. And so some of this rejoicing is going to be displayed in the middle of his circumstances. Maybe perhaps in verse 6, in the middle of his difficulty and turmoil and anguish, he's going to sing to the Lord. 
because he's dealt bountifully with me. I love the action of verses 5 and 6. In the midst of all that's going on, here's his actions. I'm going to trust, rejoice, and sing. There's hopeful resolve from David here. He sings because he knows how the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. And then when he looks back at how the Lord has dealt with him, he can say, man, that is good. It is bountiful. That, that's different than what he's experiencing in verses 1 through 4. That doesn't seem to be the only experience he's had. Then so that it is trumping all over experiences. He, he knows that the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. And, and again, depending on when this is written, there are all kinds of things that could be coming to mind as he says that the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. As the Psalm 1 man, he knows the Lord's bounty in creation because he's meditated on the law and he heard how God created all things out of nothing. Why? Because out of the overflow of who he was, here he creates. And out of the overflow of who he was, he, he gives these people as place to meet with him. He, he's seen the bounty of the Lord in that, in creation. He's seen the bounty of the Lord in saving his people from Egypt and, and when they were in their slavery and pulling them out of that and, and keeping them alive in the middle of the wilderness wanderings. He's seen the bounty of the Lord in giving the law. He looks around. He knows other kingdoms. They have other gods too. And the, those other kingdoms can't figure out how to serve their gods because they're really capricious and they kind of are all over the place or they haven't revealed anything about what they want people to do at all. And yet this God wrote some stuff down. Here's how I want my people to relate to me. Here's how I'm relating to my people. And he, he can look back and says, the Lord has dealt bountifully there. He knows the provision of the Lord as a, as a shepherd. He's been out in the fields late at night watching the flock and there's all sorts of things that could have happened there but he knows that the Lord sustained him there, provided for him there, kept him alive there. He knows how he was delivered from a bear and a lion as he was a shepherd there. Like he could look around and think about, hey, my life as a king, how you have dealt bountifully with me. I keep winning time after time even though I do some really stupid stuff sometimes. He can think about the bounty of the Lord in his deliverance from Goliath or all the enemies that keep coming and he keeps getting victory after victory and yet the Lord keeps dealing bountifully with him in that because it wasn't just because he was awesome. Amen. And so when he looks back, he, he sees something and he sees the Lord's bountiful dealing with him. And that past work of the Lord, coming out of the character of the Lord, makes him in the middle of his circumstances, in the middle of his turmoil and anguish, makes him have this hopeful resolve to trust and rejoice and sing. And so the movement in Psalm 13 is just incredible, right? He went from distress and howling in the first few verses to rejoicing. He went from questioning and complaining to trusting. How do you do that? And Psalm 13 does give us the path, right? It charts a path for us. It gives us the script for the movement from distress to rejoicing for God's people. That's why it was written, to be for God's people, that they would have this path and this script charted for them for how to move from the verses 1 and 2 questions to the end of, of verses 5 and 6. And it begins with directing everything to the Lord. So let's go back to verse 1 and notice that he approaches the Lord rightly. In, in verse 1, it, it's not generic. If there's a God up there, I hope he hears this. Oh, how long, O Lord? This is the specific name of the Lord that he revealed himself like, I am the Lord. That's the word, that's the name he uses for the Lord here. And so he approaches with some faith in place. Now maybe it's flickering and maybe it's faint, but he says, I'm approaching and I'm approaching this one true living God. 
And he asked in that place, like, how long? As if in the matter, in the midst of his great distress, that, again, the question is, how long? That I'm coming in the middle of this, and the question isn't, mean, isn't if or will, but, but how long? That, that's a, a hopeful kind of faithful question. Like, it's only a matter of time. I know these things are not going to last, but, but when will they be over? It's almost like, how long do I have to wait because I trust that something is going to happen seems to be implied in his question there. And he directs all of that, everything that he is, to the Lord. He is just, at this one place, his gut-level honesty before the Lord, and it comes out in complaints to the Lord, but it's directed to the one true living God. And notice these how-longs. They, they are directed to the Lord, but they are categories of things that the Lord also values. <laughs> the Lord cares about his people. Like he says, I'm going to be your God, you be my people. Uh, like we have a covenant, a relational uh, framework. I want to relate to you. I care deeply about you and for you. I love you because I love you, not because you're awesome, but because I love you, right? And, and so he cares about his people and, and being with them. So much so that he identifies with them. And the Lord cares that his people not be a people that are always sorrowful. He cares that his people be a people that aren't triumphed over by their enemies. Because again, within their sorrow and within their defeat of their enemies is tied up what? His name. He is identified with them. And so his name is tied to these things. And so the Lord cares about all that David is saying how long to. The Lord knows these things and cares. And in these places... How long, where, where I'm seeing enemies triumph over me and yet it's attached to your name, how long is the appropriate cry for God's people? It is the prescribed cry. God puts this cry on their lips in the middle of their distress and turmoil and anguish. In the midst of their, we think Psalm 1 and 2 is right and the good life, and yet Psalm 13 is our reality. And in the middle of that we have how long? The gap between God's value of his name and his people and what they're experiencing. The gap between Psalm 1 and 2 and Psalm 13 leads to these bold requests. He says to God, look and answer. Again, he directs this at the Lord. He's not looking around like, how are we going to figure this out? I'm in turmoil here. I got my enemies. Are like, what do you think, Joab? He doesn't do any of that. He directs it to the Lord. He's not looking elsewhere. This is a matter for the Lord to hear and for the Lord to respond to. And the Lord doesn't seem to be put off by this at all, obviously, because it's here, inspired for us in the Scripture so that we might read it and put it on our lips as well. He, I think, would be honest with his people coming with their greatest distresses to him instead of going elsewhere. He says that happens so often. You're sending your worship elsewhere. You're, you're like adulter an adulterous people. Like, stop looking for other spouses. I'm the one. If you have an issue, you bring it to me. Let me fix what's going on here. Let me hear what's going on here. I think he's honored with that when people bring their greatest distresses to him. And then comes the turn in verses 5 and 6 where he has this hopeful resolve. And he says, I'm, I'm going to trust, I'm going to rejoice, I'm going to sing. And notice how he gets to verse 5. He doesn't get there at the beginning. He gets to verse 5 through verses 1 and 4. And when we get to verse 5, we have no evidence whatsoever that anything has changed. We have no thought. He doesn't enter that in. It could be this one breath. This is his prayer, Psalm 13, in two minutes. Nothing's changed. And yet he says what he says in verse 5. He brings it all to the, to the Lord and then verse 5 and 6. Now, he, he doesn't go around the difficulty or the struggles or the problems. He brings them to the Lord and then these things happen. The resolve to trust and to have this hope in God comes from 
pouring out his heart to the Lord, praying to the Lord in the midst of what's going on, giving his complaint to God and his request to God. And somewhere in the middle of that mess of a soul that is pouring out complaints to God and praying to God and requesting bold things from God, something happens within David's soul that stirs up this resolve to say, but I've trusted in you and I'm going to rejoice in you and I'm going to sing these songs of your salvation because you've dealt bountifully with me. He begins to look back and he remembers what is true. Like he doesn't forget in the darkness what he learned in the light. And here in the darkness, he's like, I'm going to look back. I learned that in the light. That is true. I'm going to hold on to that. I know of God's character. I know of God's salvation. I know of the bounty that he's given me. And I'm going to hang on to that in the middle of all that I'm going through. Again, the path to this place of verses 5 and 6 came not through ignoring reality or, or pushing aside difficulty or, or acting like hardships don't exist and don't happen. Or that these things didn't put them under their thumb. It comes through directing those things to the Lord. And in the midst of that anguish and turmoil and problem and difficulty, in the midst of it, he prays. And he prays until he rejoices. And he prays until he sings. And he prays until he trusts. That is a path of hopeful resolve. Like whatever the how long is, he, like he just keeps putting it before the Lord until he gets to the place of this resolve of verses 5 and 6. And here we are in the, the, the stress. God, he doesn't leave people in their pain and, and ignore them. Or he doesn't say them, ignore what's going on. You know that the sun is coming. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't ignore his people. He doesn't ignore their pain. He gives them a lament. He gives them a script. He gives them words. Because he wants to lead them through it, out of it, to the other side. Here's what we know. We're no different from the psalmist here. We're no different from God's people who have gone before us. We all have how longs. What's your how long? What's your biggest complaint before the Lord this morning? What are your big questions that you have within your soul that are like, I don't know that I'm supposed to ask this question, but I have it. And I don't know if I'm supposed to say this to other Christians because I'm scared about what they might do to them and what they might think of me. What are those questions? What are those how longs that are going on in your soul? We all have them. And it does no good to deny them or bury them. Instead, what we do is we take them to Psalm 13 and we have a script we have a chart out of them and through them. We can move from distress, which we are going to feel. And we can move from there to resolve, to trust, to rejoice, and to sing. God, he, he knows the deepest longings of our heart. He knows what those how longs are in your soul right now already anyway. He knows our complaints. And he cares. And he wants all of it and all of us to be directed to him to come to him, to lay down before him. See, the path of lament in Psalm 13 is, is this path of being honest before the Lord, making bold requests before the Lord, and resolving to have hope and trust and rejoice and sing to the Lord. And when we look back at Psalm 13, we get to do the same path. We get to give the same script that David gave in Psalm 13, but we get to do it with a more full picture, don't we? And that doesn't diminish Psalm 13 at all and say, well, David, if you'd only known what we're going to know, it doesn't diminish it. Actually, I think it enhances it when we get to look back. Because here's what we may feel. We may feel like David does here, like the Lord has abandoned us, he's forgotten us, he's distant from us, he couldn't care about me whatsoever. We might feel that, but we know God came near. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. Jesus steps into the forsakenness that we feel 
he steps into the forsakenness that we deserve for our sin and rebellion against God, and he takes it on in full that those who would put their trust in him, the God who came near, would never be forsaken by God for eternity. We may have indescribable internal turmoil, depression and discouragement that seems overwhelming, like this black disease, the cloud that won't lift. But we also know the God of Gethsemane, don't we? Who walks into that garden, and there's a cloud over his head, if you could see it, right? And he sweats drops of blood in prayer. That's the Lord we know. He steps into our distress and our turmoil and our anguish and our anxiety in order that those who would trust in him would have peace eternally. We may have some bold requests, but we know the God who came and who said, hey, why don't you ask some things in my name? By the way, that name is the, the name of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you ask in my name, surely I will grant these things. So you have some bold requests. What's too bold of a request for those asking in that name? What's too bold of a request for those who have been sought after and bought and adopted into the very family of God as sons of the king? What's a too bold of a request there? And we may think that, that God, like, if he doesn't answer, then, then life is over and life is on the line in our request. But we also know that if we die, Jesus told us that even though you die, you're going to live. So yeah, we can pray out with these requests like, you better answer, my life's on the line. And yet at the same time, it's really not on the line. We may have some sort of flickering faith when we come in. We're saying, I know I'm supposed to address the Lord in my complaints. That's what Psalm 13 says. But I have almost no faith left. And we know this Lord who, who doesn't, he doesn't quench a smoldering uh, flax. He, he doesn't break a bruised reed. Instead, he says, you know what? You know, bring that faith to me. I'll help your unbelief. Amen. Bring everything to me. I'll meet you there. How does he do that. How does he want us to do that? He doesn't want us to avoid anything, but he wants us to bring it all to him. And so if you're in the middle of something that's a how long that doesn't seem to be giving up, maybe it's relational pressure. Maybe it's something where it's like, it seems like no matter what relationship it is, it's hard and difficult and I'm crying out how long. Maybe it's your own besetting sin and you're thinking, when is the Lord going to remove this from me? It seems like time is up on this thing. Maybe it's an, uh, even like an internal depression, discouragement. Maybe it's a disease, something that you're dealing with. Whatever that is, here's what we know from Psalm 13 we should be doing. Keep praying. Keep requesting. Stay within that path, that channel that God has given us here and keep bringing those things to him over and over and over again until you get to verse 5. Don't stop until you get to verse 5. Until you have a resolve in you. I, I love what one poet said. When all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know one gate is open, one ear will heal, hear our prayer. In our distress, in our how longs, Keep praying, keep requesting, and through this means, God seems to keep working surprising things. This is one of the channels God uses to draw his people from verses 1 through 4 to verses 5 and 6. This is one of the channels that God uses to give us a new resolve, new life. And we also are these people that get to look back at the Lord's love. Right? Love took on flesh. Love had fingernails and hair. Love walked around on the dirt. Jesus came after us. He, he pursued us. We didn't go after him. He came to us. We, we didn't ask for him. He asked for us. He came for us. He wanted us. He desired us. And so he came and pursued us. We get a look at his salvation. In Jesus, those who are dead can be made alive. Those who are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God, can have 
family life with God, as sons of God. We, we look back at the salvation of, of, the, of God who came and, and who lived this perfect life and died a sacrificial death and rose again. We get to look back at that salvation. And so when we have all these questions and confusion and turmoil and anguish in our souls, so all those how longs that we have, I want you to ask another question. One pastor said this, he asked this question of himself, have you received fresh evidence during the night that Jesus didn't rise again? Why don't you drop your how longs there? How long is this? How long, how long, how long? And say, wait a second. Did I get something new information here that Jesus is still in the tomb? And if not... If I haven't, then my salvation is secure, then my prayers are heard and will be answered in one way or another, then I can always rejoice no matter the circumstances because I know this isn't the end. And then I know that when I look at no matter what happens to me, I'm not under the wrath of God because I have salvation in Christ, then he has dealt bountifully with me. Any breath that I get is just mercy from him. So he's dealt bountifully with me no matter what it is that is facing me. And so I can sing. How longs are going to exist and will continue to exist as long as we live? But like David, we can have this hopeful posture of resolve in the middle of it. We've been saved and we await salvation. And in the between of that, there's going to be complaints and there's going to be requests. And we can resolve in the middle of that to trust in the Lord, to rejoice in Him, to sing to Him. Even when there's not evidence that final salvation is at hand, the, the evidence we need is the empty tomb. And unless we have fresh evidence that that's not true anymore, we have evidence that even though we don't know how this final and full salvation is coming, that it is coming one day because Jesus lived, he died, and he rose. And lament gives us the path for moving from that distress to trust and resolve in God. It gives us the script for moving from our complaint to God to our resolve to rejoice in the Lord. So wherever you are in the path in between there, there is a God who wants to walk with you, he wants to help you, he wants to save you, he wants you to bring all of it to him. And he'll meet you there. And one of the ways that he directs us as his people on the in-between of our already salvation and not yet final and full salvation, one of the ways that he directs his people in between those times is called the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that Jesus told us to keep until he returns. It's a how long kind of a meal. Because in the middle of all that's going on, we look around and we have a broken world. And we can sing and say, how long is this going to continue? And yet we take this meal of victory. Jesus has died. He has rose again. We are united to him. We will be with him. And so we take this meal of how long in the middle of this world? Fallen and broken world. And we do it with hopeful resolve. Because when we take that bread, we remember that his body was broken so that ours might be whole forever. His blood was poured out so that our sins would be forgiven forever. And we take this meal, he says, as often as we do it, we should take it knowing that one day he's going to come. It's a, a meal of how long in the midst of that how long we have this hopeful resolve. We're going to do this because you're coming. There's an until. So if you're a believer, if Christ is all to you, take this meal with hopeful resolve that he's coming back. And if you're not a believer, take Christ instead, not this meal. Let's pray together. Father, we bring our how longs to you, and we even acknowledge that in our society, our songbook isn't 40% lament, probably because we are massively imbalanced on what it means to uh, 
to suffer a lot of times. Um, God, we run from difficult things so many times. And in a society like ours, many times we can placate ourselves and put a bubble around ourselves with other things. And that's just simply not an option for David. Simply not an option for our brothers and sisters being persecuted around the world. God, would you remove that idol from us? Help us to relate on a fundamental level when you say things like, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who mourn when 40% of your hymn book is mourning. God, help us to mourn over our sin. Those of us in here whose enemy, when Dylan asked, what's our, how long is our own indwelling sin? God, help us to run to you and to remember that you are our righteousness and give us perseverance to get up and run again and to run again and to run again to you. We thank you that you meet us where we are at and you don't snap off a bruised reed. We thank you that um, whether the enemy be our own problem that we brought on ourselves or whether it be like in David's case, and it was both. His own sin caused so many issues in his life. And also, there were just enemies after him. And we find ourselves in the same place. And we thank you that we have a God who is near. Help us to turn and run to you, Father. We thank you so much that this psalm ends with singing. And we get to do so today as well. God, help us to identify with you uh, as we break the bread. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.